Learning Curve listeners, hope you are all well. We're recording this on a sunny Tuesday here in in Boston, Massachusetts. And I have the great pleasure today um, because, listeners, Gerard is off gallivanting on he's he's on a boat somewhere. Apparently, this is the charmed life that our friend Gerard Robinson leads. Um, he is enjoying himself in Maine. So Mainers, if you're if you're listening, um, look for him on a yacht, undoubtedly. But I have the distinct pleasure of being joined this week by our um, our always you know always willing to step in heroine, Carrie McDonald of the um, Foundation for Economic Education. How are you, Carrie? I'm doing well, Kara. It's so great to be with you. Yeah, it's really nice to hear your voice. Not that we ever get to see each other, that we live just a few miles apart. Oh, um, have to do that soon. <laughs> so, you know, the last time we were together, we were still just in full pandemic mode. And we were talking about homeschooling and we were talking about how many kids are going to keep homeschooling and what's the difference between homeschooling and whatever it was that we were all doing um, last spring and, and for far too many parents, in my opinion, throughout this past year. And here we are during what is um, coming up on the last week of school for many kids in Massachusetts. I know that, you know, in many parts of the country, kids are out of school. And um, for so many of us, Carrie, I mean, I know we were talking at the outset, you've been traveling a little bit, I've been traveling a little bit, it feels like the world has changed. Um, I am so curious to know from you, you know, what, what your take is on how the education landscape, whether it's changed the way we thought it would, or like, what, what's your read? on this coming year. Yeah, I think we really are at a transformational moment in education. I think mainly parents have been put back in charge of their children's education in ways that were unimaginable pre-pandemic. Not only were parents able through Zoom schooling to be able to get a closer look at their children's classrooms, but they were also uh, prompted to demand more educational choice and freedom over the past year, particularly as school closures lingered. Uh, So I think there's a lot of energy, enthusiasm, and innovation uh, leading to some more options for parents this coming year as well. Yeah, and we need only look a little bit to the north. And um, New Hampshire, we're waiting. We are waiting on this ESA. And I hear every day, I hear any day, any day it's coming. Of course, New Hampshire's New Hampshire's education freedom accounts would provide parents with, with tons of power to do everything from you know, homeschool to private school to um, to whatever it is they want to call it that's the right fit for their children um, with with a true education savings account. So um, maybe yeah. next week we will be able to say that it's a done deal. Um, fingers, I fingers so. crossed. And, I know. And New Hampshire, interestingly, um, as, as you know, Kara, is the only state in the country that has the tax credit scholarship program that's available to homeschoolers as well. And homeschoolers yeah. do take advantage of that. Um, if they're eligible. So some good things happening. Hopefully there's some more momentum. Yeah. Maybe we'll learn something here in Massachusetts. Uh, Yes. That's that's hilarious. Um, Like, like we think we can learn anything here in the Bay State. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so a little bit of a hard pivot here, Carrie, but this is a, a, a news article that caught my eye from the Dayton Daily News. And not just because I grew up in Michigan and part of Michigan is very, not far at all from Dayton, Ohio. But something that um, I've been thinking about a little bit lately, sort of in my other life, and that is like what it takes in this new world for kids who do choose to stay, and this is going to be most kids, right, who choose to stay in district schools and in state-run schools, um, 
what high school graduation requirements should look like. I mean, for the past couple of years, it, it seems like if we've had high school graduation requirements, they certainly haven't meant much um, because we've sort of accountability has gone out the window in, in too many places. But lots of talk lately about, and I think, wow, belated talk about the kind of um, computer science knowledge and skills uh, kids really need to have to to survive in the modern world. I mean, you know, I, I am a testament to the fact that you need these skills to survive because I was having trouble just logging on to Skype, getting on today with you, Carrie, and figuring out how to hook up my microphone. So um, certainly, you know, I think that my seven-year-old son does it much better, but we should really be thinking, um, Ohio, some Ohioans are saying about, you know, computer science requirements for schools. So right now, the Ohio legislature, there's a couple bills, one Senate bill, one house bill trying to meet in the middle and they're deciding whether or not computer science should be mandated in the coming fall or if the state, I love this, or if the state should just make a plan to mandate computer science in the coming fall. So it sounds like in Ohio and certainly in, in a lot of other places, um, a computer science curriculum graduation requirement is coming. You know, part of what I find so interesting about this is, again, Carrie, it's all it always points to just sort of how slow and how far behind the the blob, as some would call it, is to catch up to what's really going on in reality. So, you know, kids who have access, kids whose parents can um, pay for extracurricular activities, stuff like that as early as the age of five in many cases are taking some sort of computer science classes. They're learning coding. And there are lots of, I should say, really great coding programs out there for families who, who don't have the means to pay for expensive after-curricular, extracurricular activities, but certainly they don't reach all kids. So to me, I mean, this is an interesting story and I'm, 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 Heartened to hear that we're thinking more about sort of um, the knowledge and skills for changing economy that kids need upon graduation. But it also, to me, is just this indicator of like, okay, the great divide. And now you're finally catching up that every kid needs access, sort of like we were talking about a year ago when people were shocked to find out that actually not every kid has a tablet or computer at home, right? Or even Wi-Fi. So, um, so Carrie, I'm wondering what, what your take is on, I mean, I know neither of us are particularly fond of mandates, so to speak. <laughs> yes, I'm glad you said that. Yes. But, but, um, but, you know, the integration of something like computer science into schooling is, is sort of a mainstream exercise. Yeah, exactly. I, I definitely have an aversion to government mandates, um, and in particular with curriculum, particularly in this case with computer science, because while it will be beneficial for many students, there are could be quite a few students for whom computer science isn't um, a talent, a skill, an interest, a passion, and so on, and they're you know still expected to um, to take a full course load in order to graduate in that with that content. So that makes me you know a little bit concerned. But I think you're absolutely right that in terms of um, meeting the kind of economic realities of today and tomorrow, it's important to expose young people to uh, computer science, coding. Um, all of the kind of digital technologies that are emerging. In fact, the World Economic Forum's Future of Jobs reports from last fall uh, indicated that right now, uh, humans still have an edge over
turnover machines in the workplace. Uh, okay, there's still more, more jobs for humans than, than for machines. But by 2025, uh, we'll be kind of in a dead heat. And then um, machines will you know, gradually begin to surpass human jobs. And so you know, the, the, the quicker, I suppose, that we can get young people familiar with these new, you know, technological skills, the better able they will be, you know, not only to program these machines and these robots, um, but also, you know, I think to compete effectively and distinguish themselves and their human intelligence uh, from the artificial intelligence. You're scaring me a little bit, Carrie. It feels a little bit like we've entered the matrix. (laughs) (laughs) You're freaking me out. (laughs) You know what? Um, I some I, I hope a computer can't do my job, but I I could be convinced that it could. So, what do you? Well, when you see these computers writing editorials now, I'm like, uh oh, here we go. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're all, <laughs> there, there goes our job. <laughs> well, maybe if they could do our jobs and we could still get paid and we could sit yeah. on our and watch Netflix, that'd be yeah, good. That'd be right. fun. Right. Well, and, and so so speaking of editorials, um, the article that I picked for our discussion today, it was in Newsweek this week called Reimagining K-12 Education After COVID. It's written by Sarah Morgan Smith, who's a former director of faculty at the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University, and Brian Smith, the managing editor of Law and Liberty, both uh, say in the article that they're homeschool parents, and they're really responding to what they call this revolution in U.S. education over the past year, not just a time for reform or transformation, as you know, we've talked a little bit about in the introduction, but really um, a complete overhaul of a U.S. education, in particular driven by uh, parental choice, by school choice policies, the increasing uh, enthusiasm for um, school choice legislation, as well as a lot of these kind of innovative K-12 learning models like microschools. Uh, and learning pods that we've talked about before, and the tremendous growth in homeschooling. Um, The U.S. Census Bureau, for example, finding uh, a tripling of the homeschooling rate from pre-pandemic levels. There were about 3.5% of U.S. K-12 students homeschooling, um, according to federal data, uh, prior to the onset of the pandemic. And the census is now finding that over 11% of uh, today's K to 12 students are homeschooled, over over five and a half million students, and roughly on par, really, with the number of kids in private schools in the U.S. So um, that I think alone is really That's going astounding. to is That's really going to shape education uh, policy and practice over the years uh, going forward. That is, that's an astounding figure. And who, who would have thunk that um, it would only take a pandemic, a, a global pandemic, right? But I think um, what, a, what a fascinating take. I mean, it's confirming what I think a lot of us, especially those of us who really support parent-centered policies and student-centered policies, um, had hoped. And certainly the overwhelming amount of legislation that's being passed is really, um, is really quite encouraging. And I guess my only hope from where I sit in my day-to-day work is that these states really get this um, legislation right in in implementation and find a way to strike the right balance between the true autonomy that parents and families and kids need to tailor an education to their own needs, but also, you know, making sure that um, sort of uh, as necessary, we we know that kids are are learning um, in 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 these various uh, programs. But that homeschooling figure is just incredibly encouraging. Well, and and just for sort of some Massachusetts flavor, this wasn't from the article, but just as an as an addition, you know, um, you uh, Massachusetts K to twelve enrollment changes this 
academic year that we're finishing up now. Uh, local public school enrollment down 3.3%, homeschool up in the state 119%, um, and uh, charter schools were also up about 4%. Do you so, think that's going to hold into the fall, Carrie? Is that your prediction? Well, I think, we're, I think it, it's, it still remains to be seen, right? We don't know... Um, what back to school will look like. Let's see what kinds of CDC guidelines come down for school reopening in the fall. Let's see what the teachers unions do. Um, and let's see, you know, how many options remain available for parents. I think parents realize now that they may have more high quality options um, that are accessible to them than they had before. Yeah. And, and parents who didn't realize that homeschooling could be accessible, I think are realizing it as well. Um, I'll say just anecdotally, my children are in a private school. And of course, we, sur we saw the same kind of surge that a lot of area private schools that were open did during the pandemic. And we have retained the great majority of those students. So I think that um, I think you're right. I think that this could be a real um, a real lever for change, even here in Massachusetts. And that's just got me wondering then what a what will these districts do with all of this American Rescue Plan money? when there aren't um when they're down <laughs> so many students i'm sure they'll find a way i'm sure they'll find a way exactly <laughs> yeah right no problem anyway carrie so coming up after this we are going to be speaking with the preeminent biographer of winston churchill we're going to be speaking with paul reed um he's going to give us a history lesson in this um iconic figure and um i for one am pretty excited i'm excited to have you here with me today too carrie thanks oh so i'm so glad to be here and really looking forward to talking with paul that's right. We'll be back right after this. Learning Curve listeners, welcome back. We are with Paul Reed. He is the co-author with William Manchester of the biography of Winston Churchill, The Last Lion, Defender of the Realm, 1940 to 1965. In 2004, Manchester requested his friend Reed complete the third volume of his Churchill trilogy. The book was a New York Times bestseller and named one of the best books of 2012 by the Wall Street Journal. Reed has appeared on C-SPAN, The Churchill Chat, and was a Mason Distinguished Lecturer. In 2013, Reed was made a Churchill Fellow at Westminster College, where Churchill gave his Iron Curtain speech. Previously, Mr. Reed was a feature writer for the Palm Beach Post and a regular op-ed writer for the Boston Globe. He worked in manufacturing before earning a bachelor's degree from Harvard University Extension School and beginning a career in journalism. Paul Reed, welcome to The Learning Curve. Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. We are really excited to have you. And I have to say, you know, um, the most I could probably tell anybody about Winston Churchill is what I've seen in various um, Netflix shows in, in recent years, which I'm sort of ashamed to say. So we're very excited to learn with you today. Um, tell well, that's, us. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Some of the movies kind of take some uh, freedom with the truth. No, I have such a hard time believing that. Yeah. <laughs> so, but first, tell us a little bit about how how you got here. So you're originally from Massachusetts, and I sit here in Newton, and my colleague Carrie is also in Massachusetts. Um, and before completing, you know, this, what is known as the best biography about this major phase of Churchill's life and career, could you tell our listeners a little bit about how you came to write this biography and, and what it felt like, like completing the book, and then on top of that, the book being a bestseller? Well, I... Um sold my manufacturing company, say, in the late 80s, and for the next five, six years, did freelance journalism, uh, went to Yugoslavia for the Civil War, 
and had a good time and had a regular column at the Boston Globe. And then I went to work for Cox Newspapers in the mid-90s, and very soon thereafter did a story on Mr. Manchester and uh, his Marine friends that he served with in the war. And long story short, over the next couple of years, we got to be telephone buddies, and I went up and did more stories uh, with him at his home in Middletown, Connecticut. He grew up in Massachusetts and was a huge Red Sox fan, so that helped. (laughs) Uh, and by then the world had been waiting almost 10 years for the third volume and in 1998 Bill Manchester had two strokes and that pretty much was the end of the wait Uh, he told the New York Times Dexter Filkins that nobody was going to write the book and he couldn't write it after his strokes and so for the next few years we just watched Red Sox games and talked history and I did a couple of more stories and I didn't, I encouraged him to find someone to finish the book, but he shut that conversation down until 2003, watching the Red Sox lose to the Yankees in that terrible playoff. <laughs> uh, remember. Oh yeah. Mario Rivera was pitching. Ugh. Anyway, at the end of the game, he asked me to finish the book and I was flabbergasted. And he had had a couple of Jack Daniels, and I said, Bill, you know, did you sneak a couple more in there? And he said, no, I want you to write the book. And he asked me to do a 70-page audition for his agent, uh, who had absolute video power if he didn't like it. But he liked it a few months later, and Bill liked it. And away we went, and sadly, he died in June of 2004. And so I was on my own, and took me another eight plus years to to finish it slow but sure now I know the meaning of the uh, fable of the turtle I knew if it wasn't well received you know I was going to put a bag on my head and uh, live live life out like that but it was and it spent nine or ten weeks on the New York Times bestseller list and it was a joy to write really Uh, I wrote on average, maybe a page a day for eight plus years. And there you go. That's amazing. I think you're making it sound a little too easy, though, just a page a day for eight plus years. It was such a such a seminal and important um, and important work. Um, let's talk a little bit out about the about the book itself and about about Churchill. So when he was out of power in the 30s, Churchill warned about the evil posed by Nazi Germany. And um, it was because of his leadership during World War II that he, you know, many people think about him, especially in the West, as the greatest political figure of the 20th century. Um, We here in the learning curve think a lot about students. I will tell you, it's probably, um, you know, I'm I'm long, long, long past high school now, but it's probably an indication of the quality of the history education I received in high school that um, that I'm getting most of my information about somebody like Winston Churchill from Netflix. So. Tell us a little bit about what students should know about Churchill's role in in defeating Hitler. Well, in the 30s, he called those years the wilderness years. He still sat in Parliament, but he had no cabinet position. He had been uh, first Lord of the Admiralty and uh, the equivalent of Treasury Secretary, Chancellor of the Exchequer, and, and his career seemed to be over. And even members of his own conservative party thought he was 
uh, unstable, a misfit, a warmonger. Uh, he had very few friends on either side of the aisle, and nobody listened to him. As he warned in 1933 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 of what was coming out of Hitler's Germany. In September of 39, Hitler invaded Poland and England woke up. Uh, England had been asleep. And the next spring, uh, Hitler now was rolling eastward through Poland and westward into France and the Low Countries. And on May 10th, Neville Chamberlain, the appeaser, resigned and Churchill stepped in. The king didn't want Winston as prime minister. Half of his own party didn't want him as prime minister. They wanted another appeaser, Lord Chamberlain. I mean, uh, Lord Halifax. And immediately he, he steps into power in 10 Downing Street at the first low point of the war. France was falling 12 days later. Belgium was gone. Holland was gone. Norway was gone. Poland, Czechoslovakia, Austria. And then came the Blitz and the fear of invasion. And that's when he told Englishmen and Hitler, we will never give in. We will never give in, never surrender, fight on the hills and the beaches and all of that. And the world, especially the United States, looked at him and said, you, you got to be kidding me. It's over. But it wasn't over. And the next five years until it was over in May of 1945, he was central to the uh, Allies' uh, victory. In fact, not until 1944 did any operation have more American troops than British. They fought alone for two and a half years. We came in in early 1942, really, or last week of 1941. And uh, he, he did that as a lover of democracy, freedom, and liberty. He had great powers, but he was not an autocrat. So you wrote a paper in 2018 for Pioneer Institute, and, and in the foreword, you say, quote, Churchill read everything, but the firm foundation upon which it all rested was classical thought and classical history, especially military history. So he, already, he also wrote a 43, 43 different book-length works and spent tons of time just crafting his speeches. So given what you just said about his role and what we should know about his role in 20th century history, what do you think um, we should also know about how his education informed his approach, his, his statecraft? Well, I was just reading that uh, preface to the uh, white paper you guys did, the Pioneer Institute did, and uh, he was self-taught. He went to the British equivalent of West Point, ultimately, but as far as the liberal arts and history, literature, Shakespeare, uh, Gibbon, he was totally self-taught as a young 20, 21, 22-year-old lieutenant, mostly in India, and he learn then and for the rest of his life would tell anyone who would listen and ultimately everybody listened to study history to study the liberal arts uh you know he, he would say today you couldn't be a a great computer hardware engineer without a background in liberal arts and history it, it was important to be a good citizen and 
to not get duped by leaders who might not be telling you the truth. And he certainly believed in what George Santayana said, that those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Uh, well, if you don't study it, you won't learn from it. And that was the keystone of, of his adult life from age 20 to age 90, the, the need to study history and, and have a fluency in it so as not to, as a citizen, to get duped, especially by a leader who might have bad things in, in mind. Absolutely critical in his life. Paul, this is Carrie McDonald. Just fascinating hearing about uh, Churchill's life. You know, this past March marked the 75th anniversary of Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech at Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, where, as where Kara mentioned, you became a fellow in 2013. Um, and in this famous speech, he warned the world about the threat of communist totalitarianism in Europe. Uh, what would you discuss what students today need to know about this crucial Cold War speech? Well, the first thing is, as uh, President Biden is going to be meeting with uh, uh, Russian President Putin tomorrow, and and all sides of the political spectrum over here are worried about certain Chinese overtures and the way they're treating certain of their people. Nothing has changed. And 75 years ago, it was just a few months after the war ended, 400,000 Americans were killed. Huge number per capita of Canadians and Englishmen, British, and Scots. The world was completely tired of the, the horrors of the previous six, seven years. And here he comes to Westminster at the invitation of Harry Truman and says, we need to bond into an alliance to prevent at any, by any measure, further Soviet uh, movements to the West, uh, that Poland and Romania and Czechoslovakia were slave states now, first under Hitler and now under Stalin. Well, Harry Truman read the speech and he told Churchill beforehand, and he told Churchill, I like this. The response from the New York Times and most of American newspapers was, again, to call Churchill a warmonger. See, now we look at it as you know, he was prescient again that here comes the Cold War. But at the time, the reaction was, good God, we just finished a war and he wants to start another one. But he didn't. Uh, the, he named his speech the sinews of peace. And uh, he was flipping a phrase that Cicero had used 2,000 years earlier in, in a remark that the sinews of war are infinite resources. Whoever has the resources and the will is going to win a war. And what Churchill was saying is to win the peace, we have to think like that. We, the United States, United Kingdom, old Europe, we need allies. Uh, and he was right in, what, in 1991, the whole system came down, the, the Soviet system. But you know, I get a feeling today, looking at the news, here we go again. So it's you've been shedding light on a lot of 
um, Churchill's statecraft, I wonder if you could give us a, a picture of a more personal side of him. Um, you know, he's known as an ambitious, driven workaholic, but also enormously charismatic with an iconic personality and uh, also some eccentricity. Your biography reveals a man who smoked an estimated quarter million cigars, uh, drank and ate prolifically, painted, loved the outdoors uh, and his home Chartwell. Could you tell us a little bit more about the private side of Churchill? Well, everything you just said uh, goes to the private side. If you went to his house, his country house in Chartwell, you might find him in his gardens or in his peach orchard or at an easel painting or feeding his ducks and geese and little animals that he loved. Uh, He had four grown children then. He had a little girl who died years earlier, Marigold. Uh, three daughters and his son Randolph, he would live and die for those four kids. And it was hard on them. Uh, One daughter committed suicide. One daughter drank herself to death. Randolph died young. And his sister told me Randolph could pick a fight with a chair. Uh, So the, the kids were difficult. And he doted on them and uh, just loved Clementine, his wife, and the children, and and life in general. And and here he is writing 43 books, as you say. He's the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. If he had done just his writing, he would have been known as a great historian and writer. If he had never written a book, he would have been known as a pretty good stand-up comic. Uh, it's interesting. If he had never written a book, he'd be known as a pretty good impressionist painter. So his private life was rich. It's fascinating. Uh, you know, so he, Churchill provided world-changing wartime leadership, and as you mentioned, was also very much a Cold War prophet. Um, you know, these days, it seems that leaders you know, sort of fail to live up to his example. What do you think are some big picture lessons from Churchill's statementship, statesmanship that um, today's leaders could emulate, particularly in times of crisis? Well, I think for both the leaders and the rest of us, it's, it goes right back to that fluency in history, studying it, knowing what the consequences are, not going into you know, a summit meeting blind. Uh, not so much know your enemy, but uh, know your your competitors know everything uh, because it's all happened before. Uh, the First World War was an accident of errors of foolish statesmen who were thought to be geniuses. Ditto the Second World War. Uh, so it goes back to that study of history. And he, he told an audience once that history was like a flickering lamp that cast a, a pale gleam on the pathways of the past. Well, what he was saying was history is, is hard. It, it doesn't light up the past, you know, like a, a huge flashlight. It, it, it's shadowy and difficult. But if you don't carry the lantern, then there's no light at all. There's no knowledge. And for us to be citizens informed and for statesmen and women to lead, uh, I, for one, want to see those people know what the heck they're talking about. Because if we don't, they can tell us anything. And as Orwell once famously said, 
who controls the present controls the past, and who controls the past controls the future. And what he meant was, if you're in charge, you can rewrite history in a bad way and and go into the future, uh, you know, and your people won't know what the heck is happening, which is exactly how Hitler and Mussolini operated and, and dictators throughout all time. Mm-hmm. Paul, thank you so much for sharing all of these insights on Churchill's life and work. You know, I know our listeners would really love to hear a passage from your book if you have a few minutes more to share um, some special writing from your from your book. Well, I do have a, a sort of a mashed up paragraph that consists of one paragraph and a couple of phrases from another. And it takes place at the very last page of the part of the book that deals with World War II, which is 90% of the book. And the scene is May 8th and early into the hours of May 9th, 1945. And I had spent many pages talking about celebrations in America and in Russia and throughout Europe and free French. But I wanted to capture not just Churchill on that day, but his Englishmen. He didn't like the term Britons. <laughs> FDR used it almost to annoy Winston. Winston loved the Scottish, the Irish, the Welsh, the English. Uh, So on May 8th, as the sun went down, uh, England started celebrating. And the paragraph is, that night, bonfires burned the length and breadth of the home island. On Beacon Hill in Hampshire and on other similarly named hills in Wales in the Lake District. The fires burned in town squares from Cornwall to Cambridge, from Oxford to Liverpool. They burned in Coventry and Manchester and Bath and Bristol, and from the Scottish Highlands to the windswept northernmost reaches of mainland Scotland. They burned on Guernsey and Jersey, freed that day, and they burned 700 miles to the north on the Orkney Islands. The fires glowed on the Isle of Man and Aran Island from north to south and east to west, from the Scilly Islands to the Shetlands, Englishmen and Welshmen and Scotsmen and Ulstermen, young and old, male and female, danced in the withering firelight, their faces glowing with sweat and dusted by soot and creased by wild grins. Since 1939, as in ancient times, they had proven that they were the warrior races, It was a scene that would have been familiar to Iron Age Britons, to Picts and Scots and Celts, to the Romans, the Angles and Saxons and Danes, to King Harold, Thomas of Becket, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and Elizabeth I, and Raleigh and Cromwell, and to Churchill's illustrious ancestor, Marlborough. So I'll leave it at that. Wonderful. He, He was celebrating... Uh, his people that night. Mm. They were the ones that never gave in. That night, as was his wont, Churchill worked past midnight, well into the early hours of May 9th. It was five years to the day since Hitler had ordered his armies into the Low Countries. In those black days, Churchill told Englishmen that to give in was to sink into the abyss of a new dark age. But, he told them, If they never gave in, and they had not, they would someday reach 
broad sunlit uplands. And at that latitude, at that time of year, dawn comes early, a faint blush on the far horizon. Night defeated retreats, and light is born again. And that's the last line in the pretty much that part of the book. The rest after that, the next 20 years, is uh, anticlimactic almost. Well, that is just, it's wonderful. And, and um, such, I know it's a learning experience for me. I don't know about you, Carrie, but very enjoyable. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you, Paul. Yeah, Paul Reed, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for spending this time with us and for your wonderful work. And well, uh, we you. hope to keep have you keep writing for, for Pioneer Institute and to have you back sometime. Anytime. It was most enjoyable. And uh, um, you know where to find me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. You take care. You too. Thanks a lot. And Carrie, we never leave without the tweet of the week. Uh, this one from The New Yorker, love The New Yorker. By last October, oh, this gets right at what you were talking about um, at the outset of the show. By last October, the nationwide proportion of homeschoolers in the U.S. rose to more than 11% from 5%, from 5% to 11%. So it was 5% at the start of the pandemic. For black families, the growth was even sharper. The proportion rose to 16% from three. Carrie, homeschooling expert, please tell us what is going on here. Yeah, I mean, these numbers are just extraordinary, particularly among um, black homeschooling families have this fivefold increase in homeschooling from the start of the pandemic. Uh, there's now an overrepresentation of black families in homeschooling compared to the overall K-12 school population. So um, now we have you know 16% of black families homeschooling compared to about 15% in K-12 public schools. So an overrepresentation there. Uh, and I think it's a really you know promising sign of parents, um, again, the homeschooling community really representing parents of all demographics, of all, um, you know, parts of the country and parts of the socioeconomic spectrum, all races and ethnicities really turning to homeschooling um, for the same reason and wanting the best educational experience possible for their kids. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's just amazing. I have to say, I have a, a dear, dear friend who has chosen to keep homeschooling her kids one of the reasons she has chosen to do that is she feels that having them home is more culturally affirming for them as, as black students and as a black parent, um, something that she wasn't getting in, um, in the predominantly white school that her children were attending. And she feels like her kids are flourishing at home. So it just goes mm -hmm. to show here are the so many, um, the myriad benefits of, of what can happen for students when we give parents a little more say or a lot more say, I should say. <laughs> So, Carrie, um, we, I would be remiss not to point out that this weekend is Juneteenth, where we celebrate. It's not, not yet an official holiday, but certainly something that um, is becoming, I think, what's, what's the word I'm looking for? Normalized in our society. Certainly a lot of folks are getting time off, et cetera. That's happening um, this weekend. It's where we celebrate the emancipation of, of the slaves, of enslaved people in this country. So um, I think that that's an interesting one to watch, perhaps something that you and Gerard will be able to talk about because you will be back next week if Gerard makes it off of his boat 
he will be your co-host because I am going to be um, on my own vacation, though not on a yacht. I will be. Um, I have promised the day to my young ones is one of the first days of summer vacation for them. So, Carrie, it's just always wonderful to spend time with you. And thank you for co-hosting. Thank you, Carrie. Have a wonderful vacation. And I really look forward to being back with Gerard next week. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm sure he does, too. Make sure you give him lots of um, lots of, you really tease him about the yacht. I, I want to hear all about <laughs> it at the opening of the show. Okay. How fancy it was, what he ate. If he tries to tell you that he was fishing, don't believe him. I think he was drinking champagne anyway. Okay. So until next time, Carrie, you take care. You as well. Thanks, Kara. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye.